You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. My name is Greg Wilson. I'm here with my co-host, Rob DeHoopy. Hey, Hoopy. How's it going, man? It's going well, Greg. Yourself? Uh, things, are, things are going well here in Pittsburgh. The weather is very warm. It's We've got early summer upon us, so nice to, to get outside. I'm actually sitting out on the uh, on the back patio as we report this now, so you might hear dogs barking and kids screaming and Birds chirping. So nice. Hey, if you can if you, if you can get a little springtime in before it gets too hot, that's great. Yeah, yeah. All right, let's um, we can jump jump right into kind of news and noteworthy updates in the 340B space. Got some traction on a couple of couple of different legislative propos- proposals that went through the House Energy and Commerce Committee uh, last week. So uh, share kind of what we heard from the committee debate. And Rob, appreciate your your thoughts and insights into where you think these are going. First bill is the HR 3290. So this is Representative Bouchon from Indiana, his uh, proposed uh, amendments to the PHS statute that would require dish hospitals to submit auditable records around 340B savings, how 340B savings is used, some detail regarding payer mix and utilization of 340B drugs, lots of uh, potential data elements in this bill passed primarily across party lines, 29 to 22 votes. So this one's moving on. What What are your thoughts on how this continues to pass through the legislative process? Well, interesting, right? Because I think your, your point, it's this one passed primarily in party lines. There was one Democrat that um, kind of uh, voted for it. It happens to be Representative Stop Peters from California. Um, he he actually was the one that wrote a similar bill with Bouchon, remember, uh, the previous year, years ago, pre-COVID. In, in that bill, they actually also wanted to put a moratorium or a pause on dish hospitals, if you remember, enrollment for like two years or something like that. So so interesting that this bill, you know, Peter's point is, well, it's almost the same bill we did years and years ago, except we don't even have the two-year moratorium. So this, this should be an easy bill to pass. But he was the only Democrat that actually voted for it. All the other Democrats kind of saw it for what it is. You know, they it feels like from a transparency perspective, a lot of people are concerned about the amount of things that are being required to report. You know, I, I get frustrated a little bit um, because Sean and, and a couple of other people say, oh, this this is nothing. The hospitals collect all this data. This won't take any time. And I'm like, that's not actually true. The way yeah. hospitals collect the data that's required, right, by CMS and, and other uh, government requirements, but not in the way, shape, and form that this bill is requiring. This would actually require a lot more details because they want to go to the child site level. And you think, well, some of these big academics with lots of child sites or if you have child site hospitals, this is going to get really complicated really fast in how you collect this data because most of it's aggregated for the entire hospital. So the fact they're yeah. going to the granular detail of per child site, that is actually where the problem comes in. I don't know why they don't, I don't know why they keep saying one thing when it's not true. It's like, that's not true. This is actually a lot of effort because I've been at a hospital level. This is not something we already have data on. So I disagree with, um, uh, Representative Bouchon on that, um, but he keeps saying that that's that's not true. They already have all this data. This is simple. You got to stop saying that. Or at least talk to a hospital first or something, and don't talk to some small single hospital no child sites. It'll be easier for them. It'll be easier for small yeah. hospitals, not for complex hospitals. So, struggling with that that rhetoric a little bit. 
Yeah, you know, a couple of, I think, concerning things coming out of the discussion around this particular uh, draft is that, um, you know, civil merit monetary penalties. So failure to adhere to these reporting requirements are going to put uh, covered entities into a risk for having to pay civil monetary penalties. So so really significant impact if you're unable to comply with the standards here. And another thing that was really, I think, concerning, it was brought up during discussion or debate during the committee meeting, but uh, again, little interest on the Republican side of the committee in entertaining discussion around contract pharmacy uh, mm-hmm. provisions in this particular bill. They're again saying, hey, let, let's let the courts decide what's going to happen with contract pharmacy. So, so no relief again uh, that we're seeing right now with regard to the contract pharmacy restrictions by manufacturers. Right, right. I think Bouchon said it's a red herring to throw contract pharmacy in this. This is really about transparency. We need to handle those two separately. I think he restated or doubled down on we've got to let the courts kind of deal with that first. Although we all kind of know yeah. where the courts are going with this. We already know what one court decision is on this. So we know it, it, it doesn't get resolved in a positive way through the courts. I guess it could get resolved in a negative way through the courts. There's sure. always the outside chance, right? We get the split decision between the three appellate courts and, and, and SCOTUS decides, no guarantee SCOTUS takes it up, right? There's still some risk there. So I, I also disagree with Alan that, that it's, this isn't the time. I think if we're gonna go for something like transparency that's gonna cause more worker impact hospitals, why not also make this a, hey, why don't we make it a two-way street? Why don't we give them something back? Why don't we give them some of this contract pharmacy issue back? Something we as Congress can do. Um, but you're, you're absolutely right. There seems to be no appetite to do that at this time. So also kind of a bummer. We heard from, uh, our, our pharmacist um, in Congress, Buddy Carter, kind of siding with Bouchon on this one. Uh, to be fair, um, Representative Carter typically has more of an anti-340B stance. He also has an anti-PBM uh, stance as well. So, you know, I guess there's a little bit of pros and cons with him when it comes to uh, legislation for hospitals. Yeah, well, it's, it's a good comment to segue into discussion around the next bill that we wanted to talk about that's advancing to the House. This is H.R. 3561. So this is McMorris Rogers um, Health uh, and Hospital Transparency uh, Bill. Passed, uh, you know, unanimous vote moving this on. Tell us a little bit about what the 340B impact is from this price transparency bill. Yeah, you know, there's there's a nice, uh, this does have a nice PBM component, you know, for PBM discrimination on it. But that's not the part that has everyone concerned, right? That's where it's like, okay, that's a positive. I think that's why yeah. it's actually passing. But then there, you're right. There is this managed Medicaid component. We talked about it previously on the last podcast because, hey, we're like, hey, we got to watch this because there is at the time, in fact, I can't remember timing-wise, but initially when this bill came out, it was that managed Medicaid would require actual acquisition costs, typically like how we see a lot of fee-for-service Medicaids do. So if you think about it, that's what California and New York has on the retail side. Um, we actually haven't seen a lot of managed Medicaid requiring AAC on the administered drug side. So that would be a change. And, and we, as the first time I read this bill, I didn't see anything that said this was retail pharmacy only or contract pharmacy, retail pharmacy. So I thought, gosh, this could impact, say, infusion centers. Again, probably need to wait for the final words. Their intent may have just been retail. But as I read it, it does feel like it's for all drugs, anything that management, any drugs managed Medicare, Medicaid sorry, pays. And and they did soften it, right? There was enough word that committee so there was an amendment to this bill that basically says okay um i think and i i want to say it's states that would make the decision but but if managed medicaid can or voluntarily pay more than aac 
for for a drug, then the additional amount above it actually has to be reported. And I don't know if I can't remember if it's the state has to report it or the covered entities have to report it, but somebody's got to now report how much his overpayment was. And here's the question back to you, Greg. I, if I'm a managed Medicaid plan and this is coming out, it says, hey, we really want you to bill AAC plus a dispensing fee. And again, is that dispensing fee just retail? Does it administer drugs? Questions there. But how many are like, no, 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 I want to pay a lot more money because even though we're financially competing and we're trying to make sure we, we have the money to pay the bills and things are tight, we're going to just pay more money out of goodness of our hearts. I'm struggling how often that's going to happen. And is this going to end up being still a harvesting of 340B savings for these managed Medicaid plans? That's my question. Kind yeah. of your thoughts on where you think this will go. I mean, I haven't, you know, come up with a uh, strategy or kind of a rationale for why a managed care organization wouldn't want to move to kind of an, AP, an acquisition cost um, plus dispensing fee methodology for reimbursement. I don't know if there are other incentives out there that would uh, align with a, a PBM or a payer's, you know, interest in, in paying at usual and customary. I don't know if there's, you know, opportunity for them to collect, you know, a higher amount of rebate dollars on the back end. Um, be interesting to get input from somebody that works in the managed care space to identify why a, an insurer would actually opt out of the, the fee-for-service uh, reimbursement uh, option. The the reporting requirement requirement is, is, from what I understand, is going to fall in the covered entities. So covered entities that are receiving reimbursement above AAC for those managed care organizations are going to have to submit that data to HRSA. I don't know what the cadence of that reporting is, but you know both of the bills that we're talking about here are going to add to the administrative burden of managing a 340B program with the amount of data that you'll need to provide to HRSA on a regular basis. Right. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think, uh, you know, definitely probably need to better understand who's doing what. And I, I, gosh, we would love to hear from a management Medicaid plan. It says, no, here's good reasons why we might pay more um, to yeah. a covered entity, uh, potentially. So I just I just can't see it. Um, I'd say on, you know, on the whole, I'd say um, even Medicaid, managed Medicaid plans are I, I just, you know, for profit or private companies. Um, so they do have a, you know, many of them do have a need to try and be as you know, uh, thoughtful as possible about reimbursement and financials, making sure that they're viable. And so I just, I'd say when you've got an opportunity to bill at AAC, you know, I do, there's probably going to be a contracting period, right? You have to get through the current contracts and renegotiate contracts. So maybe part of that contracting period that that could occur, but um, yeah, definitely something to watch and, and see, see the details of what this bill says as it gets mar marked up. Now we should point out that PBM managed Medicaid bill did pass, at, you know, 100%, right? So full full votes passed from or 49 to 0, yeah. so unanimous voting in the Energy and Commerce Committee. So both these bills now ha do have to go to the full House floor for vote. Um, that's the next step for both these bills. And But that bill with the managed Medicaid is the one that's concerning because since it passed unanimously, it's probably going to have an easier time in the Senate. I guess to see if there's some, you know, if that thing gets um, modified uh, additionally, especially around this managed Medicaid or anything else. But I'm curious to see how the Bouchon bill, because that barely passed on party lines, right? Again, one of his colleagues that, uh, and I think it was pointed out, I think 340 Report actually had a good um, take on this, that, you know, Representative Peters does represent San Diego. There's a lot of biopharma down there. He does probably have some special interest for why he's he's backing the Bouchon bill, um, or at least kind of um, more uh, on Bouchon's uh, kind of level on this one. You know, we never know all the details behind that. But since it, for the most part, passed on party lines, that one's going to have a harder time in the Senate where it's still democratically controlled, right? They're going to need a couple uh, Democrats to come over to the GOP side to get that passed, which they might have. Um, who knows? Because, um, uh, you know, they're, 
transparency is something that we've seen given away. But the question is, does the Democrats in the Senate do something to try and add contract pharmacy? And then what happens to the bill if that occurs? Um, yeah. Did, did you have you did you have thoughts on that one? No, I mean, I, I agree. I think it's a steeper uphill climb for Bouchon's bill, uh, given the makeup of, of the Senate. But I mean, we, we've heard seems like there's bipartisan uh, support or desire to see more transparency around the 340B program. You know, early in the year when ASAP 340B published their or kind of unveiled their their you know policy prim- principle around 340B program reform, and Bernie Sanders was right there with them on stage at the NAC conference, um, the the legislative day, kind of in support of adding more transparency, particularly to large nonprofit organizations. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that one you know, gets debated in the Senate. The PBM transparency bill, though, that that looks like that's moving forward. It looks like there's unanimous support in um, seeing that through. So I think covered entities need to kind of brace for what the impact is going to be for them moving forward with that one. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, again, that doesn't mean people in the Senate side won't try and, you know, add further amendments to it, but, but it does look like it definitely has some steam and some momentum, especially going, going to the House floor for vote at a, previous unanimous decision. So definitely bills to watch for sure. Hey, cool. Greg, before we get into kind of our topic today, I had one more thing I want to just uh, share with the the listeners, if I could. Yeah, go for it. So, uh, you know, this this podcast will drop, you know, early June. Um, I, I should look at the calendar, just say what day it is. But with regards, if you're listening to this kind of at least close to after this podcast drops, we're coming up on June 15th. Just want to remind everybody because um, you know spoke with another covered entity recently, and um, just about Medicaid and the Medicaid exclusion file in OPACE. That w- you always want to update your NPI numbers or MBNs or even your status of carving carve out. You want to do it before the fifteenth of end of the quarter, so that's June fifteenth for Q two, um, you know, and so forth. And and that's because on on that midnight, OPACE or HRSA really pulls all those Medicaid. And, and NPI numbers, and that's what goes on the MEF on July 1st. So just because, and, and what, I'm only saying that because I was thinking, we actually, Greg and I are gonna, on, on our docket has a nice Medicaid discussion. There's so much noncompliance that we're seeing, and especially on the HRSA audit findings coming out on um, OPA's website, website, that you wanted to share that. Now's the time to do it, right? If you have any NPIs or MBNs that you use for billing that you don't currently have listed on the MEF, make sure you get those updated before June 15th and updated on June 15th means, you know, if the PC enters it, that the AO actually approves it. So those are the bills that are live come July 1st. So just, just quick update, check, double check, you know, check your yeah. billing forms, double check, make sure you have your right MPIs and MBNs on and get that updated before June 15th. Um, yeah, so that's, you're, that's you're a great, to go. great, uh, great, great point to bring up timely remainder. The, yeah, this, this episode will publish or post on June 5th. So yeah, you'll have a, uh, you know, about 10 days to get those Medicaid exclusion file changes in effect for the July 1 release. And, and I think that's a pertinent topic because that, that's something that during the PAG, HRSA had been publishing more intermittent updates to the Medicaid exclusion file. And they did communicate with the expiration of the PAG that they will now move back to quarterly updates on the Medicaid exclusion file. So important to get those, uh, those updates, those changes, removals um, in before the 15th of the month at the end of the quarter. So great update. All right, let's jump into the discussion for today. Uh, Rob, you had shared an article with our uh, Spend Ben Pharmacy leadership team around uh, some 
publication, some research that's been performed around the uptake of biosimilars um, and the impact that 340B covered entities have had on um, biosimilar uptake. Give us uh, kind of a high level summary of, of the article and why you think it's important for us to be talking about. Yeah, no, I had a, a group reach out um, just that uh, they're going to be, uh, so I, oh, I don't have permission to mention their names, so I won't, but it's, uh, uh, you know, a, a, one of those uh, journals that in pharmacy we get, and they're reviewing an article out of Health Affairs, um, 42, number five, um, by um, Amelia Bond, Emma Dean, and Sunita Desai, um, uh, mostly academia, um, and they had an article called The Role of Financial Incentives in Biosimilar Uptake in Medicare evidence from the 340B program. And so it was an interesting discussion really about has has the 340B program caused a decrease in biosimilar uptake? Like, has it been a barrier to biosimilar uptake? And so, um, you know, and this is, in, and for, so, I, so they sent me this article and said, we'd love your take this, you know, if you disagree, agree with the article, you know, do you think there's any flaws in the article? So I, I think they did a pretty good job with the article. So I just want to start off with that. But you know, just like anything else, you know, um, when we look at these things, our goal isn't to just agree. Our goal is to say, okay, did they miss anything? Um, it's almost like our 340B audits, right? There's a lot of good, but we don't focus on the good a lot of times. We focus on the, well, what, where's the room for improvement? And so, so just, I, I doubt these three authors are going to listen to our um, podcast, but if they do, I just want to say, you know, I, I actually appreciate them trying to get into this detail. Um, but the part of what my, I feel like my role is, okay, are there, are there some things from a 340B perspective that that they didn't, that they could have done better. I guess we'll say that. Not that they got wrong, but they, they could have done better um, because there are some things I was like, huh. And, and part of it is maybe they didn't explain it enough that I, I think they actually covered it because some parts they say, well, we excluded this. I'm like, well, did you exclude them entirely or did you just exclude them in this fashion or form and um, and so forth? So, I, you know, and I will say, you know, there probably is some truth to the fact that the 340B does sort of decrease biosimilar uptake. So we'll, we'll get into that as we do it. So I, I guess, though, Greg, we should point out to the audience that this, I think, is our first attempt at a journal kind of article, like a journal club type article read where we're, we're talking about an article, we're talking about its impact. And, you know, and maybe in the future we can get we can send that out ahead of time telling people, hey, we're going to actually review this article. And if you want to be part yeah. of the discussion, send your questions or thoughts and then we'll discuss it. So this is sort of a different take or different um, kind of approach today on today's podcast. Yeah, you don't we don't see a lot of peer-reviewed research in the 340B space. So, so whether the, you know, the objectives or the findings of the, the research are, are good or bad for 340B covered entities, I always appreciate seeing 340, the 340B program get some attention in the, uh, the peer review article um, world. So yeah, I, it, uncommon for us to have the opportunity to uh, kind of dissect a research paper on the 340B program, but appreciate the opportunity to do it. Um, I guess, yeah, you, you mentioned there may be some limitations to the methodology of the study in terms of which covered entities were included in the assessment. They, they, they looked at a very small segment of 340B covered entity types. What, what are your thoughts on their selection of dish hospitals or maybe their uh, exclusion of other covered entity types that are subject to orphan drug exemption? Yeah, so um, interesting enough, one of their main exclusions were the Affordable Care Act covered entities, right? So those are your critical access hospitals, so community hospitals, rural referral centers, and cancer hospitals. We always forget that cancer hospitals are subject to both. Still feel bad for them. Still don't understand why they got hit with both the GPO prohibition and the orphan drug exclusion. But but if you and so my only concern there is I guess okay I, I get that that complicates things and and so forth but 
the one concern about excluding the hospitals that are subject to the orphan drug exclusion is I actually think hospitals subject to the orphan drug exclusion actually probably have a higher uptake of biosimilars than other yeah. hospital types. And that's going to be because um, many of the, the originator products, right, the, the, the biologics, um, the original biologics have orphan designation. So they don't get 340B pricing. But biosimilars don't actually automatically get that same designation. They would have to apply for it, and many haven't. And so if you think about those hospitals and their infusion centers right now, they're not getting 340B pricing for a drug. Biosimilars come, there is a 340B price for the drug. They're going to buy more biosimilars if they can, right? And, and this study looked at Medicare populations. Medicare is kind of a more open formulary. You, you can definitely use the biosimilars or the originator. They have different reimbursement rates and all these things. But but at the same time, I, I think I think that was kind of a miss uh, that they didn't include because yeah. I would have loved to see some kind of regression analysis or you know s some sub-analysis of these hospitals say, okay, is there a counter effect of the 340B program with orphan drug hospitals? And by them excluding those hospitals, we don't actually know and get to see that. So that I thought that yeah. was a miss. Yeah, another, another part of their exclusion was uh, limiting the, uh, the dish-covered entities uh, based on uh, kind of a standard deviation of the disc percentage. So, you know, they only looked at dish hospitals that had uh, a disproportionate share percentage that was reported within 10 percentage points of the threshold for eligibility, 11.75%. So again, not entirely certain the rationale for limiting the scope of inclusion of dish covered entities that are closer to the threshold versus above. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think in some instances they were trying to look at the effect of the same hospital, right? Almost like so that the hospital yeah. goes on compared. Now, that, that wasn't the case for all hospitals because if you're 10% above, chances are you're not going to – that means you're at 21.75%. Chances are you're not going to dip down to below 11.75 anytime soon. I mean, definitely possible, but but unlikely. But it's, it seems like they wanted to get hospitals closer to that margin because they'd be more similar to the hospitals below them. So I, I understand, but I agree, right? We've got hospitals, 40, 50, 60, 70% dish percentage. And how do those hospitals deal with biosimilars? Do they have a higher uptake because maybe they have a, they have clearly a larger Medicaid population? You're getting reimbursed AAC, and I guess in the future with MCO Medicaid, even further AAC. And you're, you're right. I just think, and you miss a lot of these bigger academic medical centers um, that might have more time to convert to biosimilars, right? You think about some of the urban ones. They're already dealing with 340B and all the headaches that has. Like, I wonder if it's an effect of 340B just causes more workload. Maybe they don't have as much time and effort to convert to biosimilars. I don't know. I think there's a lot of potential confounders with excluding that group that we miss. Yeah, you know, especially an organization that's maybe attempting to align their formulary, so the, the acute care formulary, with the formularies of the commercial payers kind of in the outpatient space around them. You know, we've seen a, a very slow uptake of biosimilars in the commercial payer and the PBM space because of pricing strategies and rebate uh, incentives that the uh, the manufacturers of the originating product offer back to the payer. So, you know, that, that I got to believe that's a factor as well. And I don't think it was a discussed or addressed in the research article, but uh, you, you know, if you're you're trying to maintain alignment with regional payers formularies for you know, the, the ease of transitions of care and ensuring uh, you know, adherence of medications from discharge to, or from, from admission to discharge, you know, there, that's a factor that's likely been influencing formulary selection at the acute care level. Would you agree? 
One hundred percent. Yeah, and 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 because and because worked hospital and and I think about purchasing trans rights. So we've got a lot of. Com- I, I know there's a Medicare study, so they're trying to exclude commercial impact, but. If you have a high commercial impact, right, and and they're saying, okay, no, you've got to use Remicade. We're not. Remicade has, right, to your point, this paywall that says Remicade's this price, and you're going to – and the PBMs are getting these big rebates or the the payers are getting these rebates on the backside. They call it that paywall. The biosimilars don't have that same rebate potential. In fact, we haven't seen – we won't get into it too much, but high-whack, low-whack manufacturer has a high-whack branded drug and a low-whack, almost rebranded drug or almost their own biosimilar, and what we're seeing is – the pairs and PBMs actually want to stick with the the high the higher whack that has the PBM on the backside because right that's what funds a lot of these things and of course that's what the big knock is and and that we're seeing a lot of we, PBMs taking a lot of heat for this but we're still seeing it so if that's the case or if you're a covered entity hospital are you really going to buy three different you know the branded and two biosimilars or biosimilar are you just going to say you know what if that's the case I'm just going to buy the Remicade because most of my patients are getting that it's just easier um, and then. You know, there's a second component. Um, you might have you're about to ask maybe, but the other issue is 340B pricing. A lot of our clients, especially if you, you're big enough and you have an infusion center, you have a clean site infusion center, meaning that you don't buy on GPO or WAC first um, or WAC, I guess technically. Um, you actually buy on 340B. In general, you're you're probably going to see that the 340B price is lower on some of the originator products because they have the unit rebate amount. That has inflation penalties in it, and so your 340B pricing. So they're just going to buy the lowest cost drug, and they never even looked at well, is 340B just the lower cost drug? Period, because then they are lowering the cost of of drugs and, and the cost of healthcare. Yeah, that, that may be a factor of limited visibility in the 340B ceiling price. You know, it's not available for, for public information, but I think you're right. You know, most of those inter- originator products, you know, particularly the two that were studied here, you know, subject to significant price increases over the lifespan of those product patents and that drives down the 340b ceiling ceiling price so you, you know it's reasonable to presume that a hospital is going to look at cost because i think you mentioned it in your comment around um some of the, the the reimbursement discussion is that oftentimes hospital pharmacies aren't looking at reimbursement of their drugs they're just looking at the you know acquisition cost that they have available to them so you know, a, a low, you know, of course, you know, a low ceiling 340B price product is going to likely, you know, drive formulary decision making at that level. For sure, for sure. And and, and I just want to remind people about, you know, 340B pricing because um, it's 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 the basic formula for the 340B ceiling prices is, is is simple, right? It's it's the average manufacturer price amp minus the unit rebate amount. Now the unit, re- it's a kind of a circular reference because the unit rebate amount um, is, is you know, ha- has some of the, um, of AMP in it, but but really you, the original price is really, because there's a best price calculation, right? Um, it's AMP minus best price of unit, re- re- unit rebate amount or the AMP times, you know, or reduced by 23.1% for innovator drugs and, and reduced by 13% for generic drugs. So. But the point there is you're only getting this up to 23% discount um, up front when a drug hits the market because there's a second component. The reason why 340B goes much deeper is inflation penalty, right? So if inflation, say, 3% and you increase your drug by 10%, that extra 7%, there's a dollar amount associated with that that you went above that 3% increase. That actually go factors into the unit rebate amount. And, and just to remind people, so if someone really jacks the price of their, of their drug, that dollar amount could actually take that dot that uh, – 
the actual unit re rebate amount so it's larger than AMP. And if it is, that's when the price goes negative. That's when we get into penny pricing penalty. So again, you know, some drugs if on the price penalty or just significantly impacted by maybe they didn't get all the way to a penny, but maybe they did go higher than inflation, that URA, um, the AMP minus URA could be big enough where the, the innovator originator product is lower cost than the biosimilar on the 340B side. Because 340B, the biosimilars, the new biosimilars only have typically that 23.1% that or 13%. I actually got to find that out. I don't know what percents apply to biosims because they're not exactly innovators, but I don't know if they get the generic drug or, you know, there's yeah. a blood clotting factor and exclusive pediatrics at 17%. So that one's sitting in the middle. Um, but whatever that discount is, it won't include a inflation penalty yet because they haven't been out long enough to have inflation penalties. Interesting. So, so again, I, I mean, and so my thought is, so I, that's why I want to tell the article writers, of course, 340B has an impact on biosimilar uptake, but not for the reasons they thought. If you get into the article, they actually talk about, well, Oh, I think hospitals are looking at reimbursement and they're looking at the drug drug costs. They're also looking at reimbursement from Medicare and saying, oh, I get higher reimbursed on the originator pro or innovator product. Plus, I can, you know, potentially, they didn't talk about pricing, but say you paid less for it and you get a higher reimbursement. Well, why wouldn't you? That doesn't, right? That That's not a hospital problem. But I almost want to point out most hospitals, they're not actually that sophisticated. Uh, I mean, yeah. They are, but they're not. I shouldn't say that because I think they are. But at least from my days, I, one of the things I, when I became a pharmacy director and I got a budget, I'm looking at my budget and I see my expenses, which are real, right? Your expenses are real. That's what you actually paid for drugs. Then you have this revenue side, these charges. You look at your charges and go like, wow, these charges are crazy compared to my expenses. They're not real. That's just what you build for it. And we know hospitals are billing these huge amounts or big multiples above what, the, what they actually get reimbursed. And it's because they're trying to maximize reimbursement. And when you have payers paying a percent of charge up to X, they've got to charge enough to maximize that reimbursement because that's what they have to do. So that inflates how much their charges are. So my budget didn't actually tell me what we got paid for the drugs. It just told me what we got charged. So I don't, I, we, so we never really looked at it. There were some isolated cases. Um, like I had some, I had these um, twins. So I won't get into too much detail because I don't want to violate HIPAA, but they were on a med, some really high cost biologics. And so of course my CFO was like, hey, I said, hey, this is going to blow my budget to start, you know, meds to these, these patients. So I just wanted to let you know, he's like, what are we going to get paid for? It's like, I don't know. I guess we can ask. So we figured out our process. We talked to billing. We, we infused the, the first patient uh, checked. And of course there were Medicaid. So we're trying to figure out well, how much are we going to get paid and these things. And you know, we got paid enough to cover our costs because we could buy it at 340B. If we couldn't buy it at 340B, we actually would have lost money on reimbursement. And that happens quite a bit. So I think that's why we almost look and say, we, I mean, we care what we get reimbursed, but we're not actually that focused on it. We're more focused on drug pricing and um, no, I, I say that for, for people listening that are, you know, in that kind of pharmacy leadership role, but it's not a bad idea from time to time to go check what are our reimbursement rates? What are the Medicare reimbursement rates? Can we make better decisions from a purchasing and reimbursement standpoint? But I can tell you, we're so busy in the pharmacy hospital side that sometimes we don't have time to get into that level of detail. We're literally just trying to buy the lowest cost drug. We're trying to keep our expenses down. And if you think about how pharmacy directors budgets are built, we're, we're really factored on expense. Those charges don't actually, what we yeah. actually get reimbursed is sort of irrelevant. Great thoughts, Rob. Any other kind of last minute thoughts before we wrap up here? No, you know, one other thing and um, that I was looking at is just kind of the um, the background, right? You always do the characteristics of your comparator, right? Because they're comparing non-340B hospitals to 340B hospitals. And I was looking through, I was like, okay, let me see if there's any um, characteristics between the two groups that 
cause and impact to the study results. And there was one. Um, if you look at most things are pretty close, at least, you know, I would say probably not a huge you know, difference to make a material difference. But teaching hospital percentage in the qualified 340B eligible group versus the non-eligible group was significant. We're talking 64.4% yeah. in the eligible group, so the 340B side, and only 38.7% in the non-eligible side. And again, I, I do think teaching hospitals can make a critical difference in, in how things are done. Sometimes yeah. you have more people, you've got more medical students, pharmacy students. So I think that could have an effect on, you know, the biosimilar uptake being decreased, you know, for whatever reason. Yeah, no, I think that's a great insight. And they, they maybe hint to it in, in the discussion section of the article, but I think you're right. You know, a larger teaching institution that has alignment or affiliation with medical school or pharmacy school likely has an easier time taking on the burden of making significant formulary changes. So, you know, that in and of itself, you know, independent of, of 340B pricing or revenue, you know, the operational burden is lower for a teaching hospital than it's gonna be for a facility that doesn't have uh, that degree of, of clinical expertise to make those changes. So significant yeah. difference in the comparison between the not eligible and eligible hospitals. Yeah. You know, there was one other thing I saw that I was like, you know, when I look at the data, so did you hear this in pharmacy school or is it just me? Um, one of my uh, statistic professors said, you know, and, and especially when it comes to studies, and I, I want to say this is Linda Tyler, but, but I could be wrong, so don't quote me on this, but she, she was in charge of drug info at the time. And she did her drug info lectures at the University of Utah. Um, and so people might know her. She was an ASHP president. Um, and of course, um, so 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 known in the 340 space, actually, uh, affectionately call her LT, we, at least we do in our pharmacy school. Um, but uh, she always says there's lies, there's, I'll, I'll be a little bit more soft here, dang lies, she didn't say dang, and, and then there's statistics, right? So, um, <laughs> and, and so I always thought that was interesting, but there's a graph on exhibit three. So if anyone ever is looking up this article and just wants to check it out, graph three, it kind of has a scatter plot of, of the hospitals, what their dish percentages were and, and what their rates of biosimilar administration was. I guess compared to unadjusted biosimilar administration. And if you look at it, the vast majority of the hospitals between the two groups actually look very similar. Scatter yeah. plots, they fall within this range of 10 to 30-ish percent. It just so happens that the non-qualified, non-340B hospitals have two hospitals that are well above 40%. And so I look at that, it says, okay, this isn't a huge N, right? There's just a small number of, of dots here. And you have two outliers on the non-340B side. And so that tells me, well, what happens if we drop the two top and two bottom from each group? What does it look like? I'd venture to say it's pretty dang close. Like, I, I think it would be- The, spread, the spread really narrows, likely, if you remove those outliers, yeah. So that my only concern there is, right, did, with the number of N we have, do we just have some, you know, maybe for-profit hospitals that don't have three for to be, because I would get it, right? If, you're, if you don't, then you're going to look at price again, and biosimilar price is going to be lower cost than your or innovator products, or originator products. Yeah. I keep using both terms interchangeably, but- um, and 340B hospitals don't. If they're going to buy at the lowest cost, then they're going to have less biosimilars, especially if the their innovator products lower cost because of what we mentioned, inflation penalties that factor into the unit rebate amount that then drop the overall 340B ceiling price. So I just think there's so much going on in 340B that I'm not positive that these authors actually know new 340B in enough detail to get into some of these nuances. Um, they're just kind of doing the data review and, and just highlighting something. And and the reason this is important, because it was their final recommendation, and somehow, and this is something LT taught, you've got to look at the data they provided, and are they able to make the claim or jump that they 
it in? Because I kind of believe that they don't. Um, I, I just don't think there's enough evidence here to support what they're saying. Because their final thought on this was, our findings add to evidence supporting cause to reform the 340B program to benefit low-income patients. And I'm like, how did you get that from that data? Like, how did how is that your yeah. conclusion from this data is that 340B needs reform because of this? Um, and that's my ultimate yeah. struggle with this article. Yeah, yeah, conclusions maybe a bridge too far, looking at the limited amount of data that was reviewed here and not taking into account a lot of the limitations of how the you know, 340B data was analyzed. Like, because I'm trying to think, well, what would the reform be when biosimilars come out, um, make sure that they're lower cost than the innovator product? That's that's not how the 340B program works. Uh, I guess we could reform yeah. it that way, but that's-, that's Yeah, I mean, just... they, they suggest, you know, one of, one of their suggested reforms, or I don't know if they're suggesting it, but they're, they're kind of pontificating on a potential reform is limiting eligibility to a fewer number of hospitals. Um, with with a higher disproportionate share so raising the disproportionate share threshold and lowering ultimately lowering the number of dish hospitals that are participating in the program you know i think that's one of their you know kind of theorized reforms that could mitigate the findings that they've reported in their article and that just doesn't seem to make sense when you look at the the totality of 340b impact yeah yeah and, and so i mean in summary i Kind of, that's why I started with, hey, I'm going to beat this one up a little bit just because I, I did, a, you know, my master's of science was in pharmacotherapy and outcomes research. And so got a little bit of training in, in, in reviewing these types of studies. And um, but I will say, I mean, the, they're not wrong. Right. At the end of the day. Yes, it's true. Yeah. 340B does limit biosimilar uptake, but not for the reasons I think they thought. I think it's just more simple. It's Occam's razor. Right. If you hear hoofbeats, look for horses, not zebras. I think they look for zebras. The, the horses. 340 price is cheaper in a clean site infusion center, they're going to buy it. It's that simple. Um, there might not be as much incentive to buy biosimilars when you have 340B pricing um, and the way 340 pricing works. Uh, it's kind of like, to me, it's like almost end of story. We, we should just stop there. Um, yeah. I didn't need to go into all this regression, right? And then the eliminating all these other covered entity types or dish percentages, it just felt like such a narrow group of hospitals that you could even apply this the results to in the end. So, yeah, but, and, uh, and again, perhaps unreasonable to make the suggestion that policy reform is necessary based on this singular category of, of finding in a, in a narrow 340B sector. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So I appreciate their effort for trying, and it did allow us to talk about it and think about it and even think from our perspective, well, is this true or, or you know, do we have other thoughts on this? So you know, and, and here's what I would say. If for some reason one of these authors do end up listening to this podcast, I was like, hey, I heard your name and here's the podcast and it didn't go well. It, you know, first of all, um, you know, it's just, just our perspective and our thoughts from our experience. Love to have one of you on if you guys are listening to kind of, kind of talk about it and, and, and definitely counter some of our arguments because maybe you did look at some of those things and it just wasn't in the data or I, I missed it. Um, I read through it a couple of times, but, you know, I'm looking for certain things in there and, and trying to understand the article. So. Just want to share that and have that open invitation because it'd be fun to just, you know, have a quick uh, 10, 15 minute discussion on it. We'll drop a reference to the article in the show notes. So folks that are listening and are interested in reading the article, feel free to do so. Um, Rob, I've got to run. Busy day of auditing ahead of me. Uh, it was good catching up with you. We'll catch you the next time. Sounds good. Thanks, Greg. Good luck today. All right. Thanks, everyone. We'll catch you again. See ya. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.